This is the Snug Podcast. In this episode, when Neil met Lucy, because all of my roles have tended to span boundaries, um, and that's what I really, really, really enjoy. Um, it's not the subject matter that I enjoy; it's what I can do to make a difference. Practically two groups shouting each other with the other side saying, but patient care, patient safety, we have to share information. And the GP's saying, well, actually, we want to share information, but we have legal responsibilities. And the other side saying, legal responsibilities, you're just an excuse, you're just a bunch of rotten bampots. A bunch of rotten bampots. A bunch of rotten bampots. We need to agree to share information safely. 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 Very. Safely. Hello, my name's Neil Kelly and I'm one of the co-chairmen of the Scottish National Users Group and it's a great pleasure to bring you another snug podcast. Uh, This time I had the pleasure of meeting up with Lucy Munro, who's the Associate Medical Director for Primary Care at the National Health Service, National Services for Scotland. And she uh, agreed to meet with me to talk a little bit about her career and in particular uh, to talk a little bit about the joint data controller arrangement uh, which has been negotiated between the Scottish General Practice Committee of the BMA and the Primary Care Director of uh, the Scottish Government. So uh, we met up in Edinburgh um, in a rather noisy coffee shop And I hope that you uh, can take something away from this, in particular, perhaps the messages uh, about what practices need to do now in relation to completing the joint data controller agreement documentation that was issued uh, by government towards the end of last year. So here we are, my chat with Lucy. I hope you enjoy it. Lucy, great pleasure to meet up with you in the new year. Uh, Happy New Year to you. And uh, thanks very much for agreeing to come and meet in this very salubrious coffee shop in darkest Edinburgh. I wonder if we could kick off with you telling me a little bit about who you are and what your professional journey has been to get you here. Okay. So happy new year, Neil. Thank you. Um, And it's nice to see you. Um, So my professional journey. Well, I'm a GP. Um, and um, I've been a GP for, for quite a long time now, I think about 20 years. And my journey probably started when I was a GP trainee. Um, I was at the half-day release um, that, you do, that you went on back in the day. And we were on the half-day release, and, and the, the chief trainer, I don't know what they were called at that point, but I don't think it was the TPD, but anyway, the head guy, yeah. um, said, nobody is leaving this room until we have reps for two committees. One of them is called the Local Medical Committee and one of them is an Education Committee. Um, we need the reps um, and nobody is going home until we have a rep from this group. Now, I was going on holiday and my husband was outside in the car waiting for me. And I knew that he was there. So I immediately put my hand up and said, what was the first one called? And they said, that was the Local Medical Committee. And I said, right, I'll go to that. Um, and that was it. Um, it was as simple as that. So I then joined the local medical committee, which seemed to be um, full of 
middle-aged men deciding my future. Just hang on a wee second here. I'm not sure I like that. So um, I was on the local medical committee and it took me probably about a year to start talking. Um, now people find that really odd. My well, husband, I was say, my husband, that's a bit harsh. My husband found it really odd when I said, "Oh, I eventually started talking at the local medical committee," and of course, once I started, I did not shut up. So I was initially the GP trainee representative on Forth Valley's local medical committee. Then I was the first five um, representative. I guess at that time it was the first seven because it was GP principles not in receipt of um, seniority was, yeah, yeah. was the term. And that was seven years. But and now we would think of it as, as kind of first fives. Um, and then I was the Grangemouth representative, the area representative after that. Um, and through being on the LNC, I did, was introduced to lots of things that I guess as a GP on the ground you aren't always introduced to so we started to understand how the health board worked started to understand um, just generally how the world worked outside of the practice and I thought it was absolutely fascinating and deeply deeply frustrated that um, they couldn't just do everything for GPs so I was kind of being succession planned into a role that would have taken me towards SGPC and that kind of stuff and I thought actually I'm not sure I want to do that, yeah. um, I'm not sure I want to be a middle aged man um, <laughs> in a darkened room on a Tuesday night um, arguing about stuff I, I think I might want to do something else so I actually took a job in Fourth Valley with um, education so it was a kind of um, job that spanned NES and Fourth Valley and I did a lot of whole system quality improvement work um, at one point I had 56 practices um, in small groups with um, consultants discussing um, care pathways and um, the consultants were actually really really receptive as were the GPs on the back of that um, I did some leadership and management training and postgraduate certificate in yep. that and um, I then saw a job advertised with the Royal College of GPs which was one day a week and it was all about finding ways of supporting um, GPs as, as leaders. And I worked for John Gillis in, okay. in the Royal yeah. College of yeah, GPs yeah. when he was chair. So I worked for him for, for two and a half years, and that, that had an absolute ball. I was introduced to kind of, I, I guess, the, the political arena. Um, I was, mm. you know, starting to understand what the government did, what was done at a national level, and I really got a taste for that. All the while through this, I was a GP partner in Grangemouth, and um, obviously I was working three different jobs. I had my Fourth Valley job, I had my um, GP job, and I had my Royal Culture GP job, and, and that all took me up to just a bit more than full time. And what came out of the Royal College of GPs was an opportunity to um, bid for some money, which 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 we were successful in, in so doing, um, to put on a, a course called or a program called Leading for Integration, which is, has been very successful and has taken GPs um, and. Um, CQLs and um, clinical directors alongside people from social work and the integration space and, and brought them together and they learn together and they, they, they develop together um, as leaders. It's been really, really highly evaluated and the government keep funding it because it's it's 
tends to be oversubscribed and highly evaluated. And it's still running today? It's still running today, yeah, yes. I, I, I've done it. You've done it? Yeah, okay. It was great. Was it? Yes, yes. So I, 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 I created that alongside NHS Education Scotland and the Scottish Social Services Council. Because all of my roles have tended to span boundaries, um, and that's what I really, really, really enjoy. Um, it's not the subject matter that I enjoy, it's what I can do to make a difference. Um, there was a hiatus between when we applied for the funding to when we got the funding in the Royal College of GPs of about 12 months. And during that 12 months, I was approached by the Executive Medical Director of NSS who had heard that I was something to do with leadership um, and the RCGP and I was a GP. And they were looking for a senior leader in their organisation. Didn't know quite what they wanted. So they seconded me for six months, um, interestingly from my NHS Education Scotland role. So quite complicated. Um, so they seconded me for six months and they asked me to kind of work out what a job for them would look like. And so how long ago was that? That was... Approximately. Five years ago. Okay. That I was seconded. So they must have found what they wanted because you're still there. Well, I worked up the, the job description and I worked up... I, 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 I talked to a lot of people. I, I went out and met with all the associate medical directors for primary care across Scotland and said, well, what, what do you need from this big, strange organisation that I'd never heard of until like a few months beforehand? And I, I looked at the organisation. It's really quite a complex organisation. Yeah. Um, and I applied for the job. And I, I was kind of kicking myself at one point because I was so... I kept it really quiet that I was applying for the job because I wanted lots of people to apply. So lots of really high-caliber people applied. Um, and I was, like, really quite worried because I thought, I might not get this job. Shit. But fortunately, I did. I got the job. I was nine months into that job when the Scottish Government came knocking and said, could I possibly come and work with them for... Um, a couple of years um, working in and around the um, transformation fund it was that, that, yeah. that they said but rapidly gave it, became apparent that they needed me to do something a little bit different yeah. and they needed all the connections and networks that I had built up in more in the digital space and I had done that over the course of the preceding year so, so, so I was going to say, so in your current role then with, with NSS just tell us a little bit about what does that involve what, what what do you do there and um, maybe just sort of tell us a little bit about some of the key projects that, that are okay. on your desk so I think it's probably imp- important to understand what NSS is yes, yeah. okay? because NSS is a quite a difficult concept for people to get their heads around so basically NSS provides a kind of national support services and expert advice to NHS yeah. Scotland so it's anything that should really be done across Scotland for the whole of Scotland we tend to do it apart from obviously Health Improvement Scotland and NHS 24 and and Ambulance Service so really we do just about anything Um, for example there are about 1.2 million people in Scotland who are protected by vaccines which is obviously a collaboration between Health Protection Scotland which is part of us um, and and general practice Um, 1.5 million um, people are screened every year for cancer and diabetes um, there's like 220,000 blood products that we produce. Um, we've got 1.4 billion of managed goods and services. Um, two, yeah, exactly. There's 2.4 billion pounds worth of payments to GPs, dentists, pharmacists, and optometrists. 
I mean, the scale of it is enormous. And I think probably um, people understand NSS in, in terms of understanding the bit of NSS that they interact with. Um, so people often think, well, this is going to know about data. As you know, Neil, I am not an informatician. No. Um, some distance from being an informatician. Um, I am not a digital expert, some distance from being so. But my job is actually about navigating that landscape, yeah. which is really, really complex, yeah. and yeah. making sure that NSS are doing the right things um, and that they're doing them right, um, which spans across a multitude of things in NSS across Scotland um, and across multiple NHS services. It's not just data and it's not just digital. Although, obviously, in terms of what's on my desk, in terms of primary care, the sorts of things that I'm doing is I'm looking at how we get much more user involvement in designing things so we're doing a lot in NSS around user centred design so that's taking people who are actually working on the ground doing the day job as I am because I still work as a GP um, and who are using um, you know, the IT systems, who are using um, all, all kinds of systems, really, and, and making sure that the, what we design for the future actually works for them. Um, so that sounds really nebulous. I understand that. Um, so your, your average GP might be like, oh, what's that all about? Because it's like quite conceptual. But it's really about... It's almost like a translation job. It's like understanding what the needs of primary care are at the moment, what they're likely to be in the future, and making sure that we work towards that, that every step that we make, everything that we do as an organisation, goes in that direction. And there's something incredibly critical about that ring-holding um, experience and that, you know, that breadth of opportunity that you've had across your career clearly you know, helps you to understand the tensions and pressures that everybody is working under and how you actually bring some of that together. I wonder if we can move on a little and I just, you know, obviously as a, as a national users group um, we know that you've been a bit involved in some of the work around the discussions around joint data controllers. Yeah! Um, and, and I know that we've all been sort of waiting um, for the last uh, year or so um, for some sort of uh, idea of how that's going to work. And I just wondered um, if you could give us a little idea of the sort of background to that piece of work and how you were involved in that and, uh, and where that is now. Okay, so, so I did my piece of that work when I was working um, seconded to the Scottish Government yeah. rather than my NSS role. Um, but my NSS role really helped with that because, again, I had built up certain connections and networks um, to people, including the Information Commission Officer, which was absolutely pivotal. So for the last 10 years, I have been in rooms where you have GPs on the one hand um, being concerned, expressing significant concern about their legal and moral responsibilities um, over, over data um, sure, and yeah. data protection law and as data controllers. And, and these are very, very valid concerns. Uh, so I've been sitting in rooms with that and people from other bits of the NHS 
practically two groups shouting each other with the other side saying, but patient care, patient safety, we have to share information. And the GP's saying, well, actually, we want to share information, but we have legal responsibilities. Mm. Um, and the other side saying, legal responsibilities, you're just an excuse, you're just a bunch of rotten bambots. Kind of... A not literally saying that, but that that was a conversation that when I came into this seemed to me to be playing out in multiple rooms across the land. Now, that tended to be at a national level. At local levels, um, at health board levels, tend to be much more sensible conversations. Yes, yeah. But at a national level, there, there, there wasn't, and there was nobody really giving a national steer. So we had a really, really good opportunity with the um, GMS 2018. One of the principles um, of the negotiations of GMS 2018 was to reduce risk to GP partners. Yeah. And this is because um, new GPs coming through didn't want risks of premises, risks of um, taking on staff and the risks of being data, data controllers. All of this was too much personal risk yeah. to hold. When you talk about holding the ring, you could hold the ring of that risk as a GP, yeah, yeah. as well as all of that fuzzy, messy world that we work in clinically, yeah. where holding risk is pivotal to what we do, yeah, yeah. Um, and managing risk and assessing risk. Yeah. There's only so much risk people can take. Yeah. So you've got your professional risk in, in terms of, of what you do clinically, um, where you're, you're constantly weighing up harms and benefits for, um, for people um, uh, with their illnesses or their their problems or whatever they present with, and um, but the personal risk um, that you could be fined or you could be left holding a building that that was a big big driver. So, in discussions in the Scottish government, I got a little bit frustrated internally and said, "Oh, for heaven's sake, we just need to get everybody in the room and and, and you know, work the problem. It can't be that difficult. There must be a way forward." Never say that sort of thing, Neil. Never. Because what happens is they kind of look at you and go, well, do you want to go and do that then? Um, which is not literally... Better a volunteer than a press person. <laughs> um, so not, not literally. What, what I did was I started doing some background work. So I started having conversations with the BME um, and the Information Commission Officer separately. So mm. um, the Information Commissioner's Office w- w- was amazingly fantastic. They totally understood the situation that GPs found themselves and they totally understood the situation for um, see your hospital doctors who are desperate for, for more information. Really, really, really interesting conversation. So we spoke to them first. and oh, Actually, it was probably just at the same time. Spoke to them and spoke to the BMA. And we got a sense that both parties were really up for having a conversation about this in a more formal way. So we, we created a short life working group um, and I was asked to chair that short life working group. So there I was, um, I had um, the chair of the Scottish GPs committee um, and I had the information commissioner's office and Professor Sir Lewis Ritchie and the representatives of the Scottish Association of Medical Directors and I was feeling a bit kind of, oh, okay, right, here we go. But of course these people are... Um, they're just people, um, and Absolutely, they yeah. were delighted to be working through this problem. And all desperate to resolve the problem. And actually all desperate to resolve the problem. So I, I guess I had no reason to be intimidated, although I kind of felt a wee bit intimidated, as as, as you would. So I, I chaired this, this group, and the outcome of the Short Life Working Group was that the Information Commission officers, um, we asked 
we asked them, we said, how should we think of GPs um, and health boards in relation to, chunk, to con- controllership or data controllership? And she wrote very kindly, wrote me a letter and said, the most pragmatic way to think about this is that GPs and health boards both have responsibilities, ergo they are joint data controllers. Yeah, yeah. That's de facto. That's not a case of we're going to change policy. That's just a fact. Um, we are provided with all of our IT and digital stuff by the health board. Therefore, they are involved in data controllership. Um, we enter all the data. We have a certain level of control within the practice. We, have, you know, all of the um, subject access requests to us come in, and that's a contentious issue. They all come to us, etc., etc. And, and, and that quite rightly is is our, our role because we are the clinicians there um, looking after those records but we both have responsibilities so that's, that's where it came from um, so we, we wrote a report which then went into the GMS regulations so yeah. then it became part of legislation yeah. so joint controllership is now part of the legislative framework for um, GMS mm-hmm. which is a really really positive move because you actually can't really argue with that the information commissioner says we're joint controllers. We put it in the regulations. De facto, that is the situation. Yeah. Um, and it, it's not it's not up for debate. It, it is it is how it is. Yeah. Um, and it's not me that's saying that. It's it, it's the information commissioner that was saying that. Oh, so the, the conclusion of all that was um, that an agreement needed to be drawn and agreement, up. Yeah. And I, I guess the documentation for that has hit the streets fairly recently. So it took it took a long time to do that. There was a question mark as to whether or not um, we should just write it and give it to people in the Scottish Government. However, because we were looking at new legislation and there being no case law, um, it really needed to be collaboratively written. And most things are better. It's better to wait for them a little bit longer. Like I say, this has been going on for 10, probably 15 years, these debates. Um, waiting another 12 months, I actually think was worth it yeah. to bring health boards with us, to bring um, the BMA with us, to bring the Royal College with us, because really this is about patient care and it's it's about re- reducing risk to G- GP. So the two things, and it's important to get that right. So what it should mean, though, is it should mean that um, GPs no longer have the threat of being fined for something that is completely out with their control. Yeah. Um, now, the information commission officer, Maureen would say she would never have fined us anyway if it was, if it was genuinely out with our control. But then we always get legal advice. Technically, we're on the hook. And it was never quite clear enough. Now it is crystal clear. If we cannot control what's happening to data and there's a breach then it's not it's not going to land on, on, on our shoulders if however we do something completely stupid like give out third party information in a subject access request as happened down south and there was a significant fine laid upon the, the, the GPs there then, then, then yes we, we will be held to account but we can control that. We can have processes in place in our practices yeah. to control that. Yeah, I mean, it absolutely doesn't remove our responsibilities as part of that data controlling yes. arrangement. Yeah. yeah. So this national agreement um, has arrived. Um, and I wonder, you know, uh, what your view is in terms of what practices might need to do now, having 
um, been given a copy of the sort of national template? So, um, my genuine hope was always, and my genuine intention, because obviously I've now stepped back from this work because I'm no longer working for for the government. Um, So I I got the policy in place and got the law in place, um, the legislation in place. Um, But I'm now back in my my own job in in NSS, which comment came to an end. So, um, in terms of, of what my intention had always been, my intention had always been that we would start with a national template that would then be checked locally by health boards and LMCs. So um, practices shouldn't have to worry unless they're doing something different from what the, all the other practices in the in the, the area are. That was always my intention. So, so it wouldn't be national um, data controllership um, templates and, and agreements going straight to practices, yeah. there would be a step in between that, so what, whether sorry, they go what, to health board levels, where the GPIT yeah, facilitators okay. would be involved um, and the LMC would be involved. And what, so what sort of checking might need to be done? I mean, what, what sort of things might so, need to so in there? So, yeah, so these are all kind of GDPR things. Yeah. I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on GDPR, but the, you have to check the things are actually right in, yeah, in, yeah. in the, the, the joint controllership agreement. So that both so parties are complying with their responsibilities. Both parties have to comply with their responsibilities um, and check that the, the detail is right. So if it says, for example, you use vision and you actually use email, then you need to change yeah, it. And that's yeah. a very obvious example. Yeah, yeah. But if it says that, um, you know, you're... you're if you need to add in something that you're sharing information, say for example for research purposes, then you might have to add something like that in because that would be your responsibility to then look after as a GP rather than the health board's responsibility. Um, that kind of thing. Um, so, so LMCs obviously have a fairly key role yeah, in just absolutely. making sure that all of that uh, is in place, that there is some sort of local discussion or negotiation around any peculiarities that there might be yes. locally? So, so anything that's kind of very um, individual to your practice or something that's very individual to your local area, right. um, you need to check that that's included. Can, can you think of an example of that? Or uh, I'm kind of struggling a little bit with that. I mean, if you have a sort of arrangement particularly with a private provider for some sort of thing? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, I mean uh, you know, Neil, GPs share data for a with a variety of for a variety of reasons, um, the best example I can think of is potentially research. So, yeah. if, they're, if they're sharing information um, for research purposes, yeah. um, the next door neighbour practice might not do that. Yeah. Yeah. So that would be a difference so between be different. them and their and, and their neighbours, right. or them and their neighbouring cluster, or you may be doing something as a cluster where you've chosen to share information automatically okay. um, or you may be doing something um, you know, through an enhanced service where you're sharing information automatically which other places aren't in your local area so you need to make sure that sort of thing's included. So we've both lived through um, this whole process of um, evolving integration of health and social care and always been frustrated by uh, the difficulties of sharing information across that um, divide, if you like. Um, what do you see the sort of future of that looking like um, from a practitioner's perspective? 
So from a practitioner's perspective, all practitioners should have available to them the information that they require and no more um, than uh, more, no more than that. Um, that they, need, they, they need to make sensible decisions um, for for their their people that they look after. My fairly strongly held view, Neil, is that when it comes to the, the social care situation, is that if somebody has is uh, is competent then they should make their own decisions about what information is shared. That becomes slightly more difficult when you start talking about medical procedures and medical information because it would be quite wrong for somebody to end up with, say, for example, a CT scan who'd already had a CT scan just because they didn't share that information with a new um, colleague or... um, you know, say for example demand to, to, to go and see another consultant and, and for that consultant not to have the results of tests that were done two years ago and my sense or is that, that GDPR actually yeah, really helps us in that respect really helps us because in that actually respect that, there's that very clear expectation that that information can appropriately be shared, shared. but equally I think the emphasis around um, consent is you know, mm-hmm. a, a very helpful that you know, good practice would suggest that we should just seek consent whenever we think we might need to mm-hmm. share information. So it's really interesting um, about the, the notion of consent because, as you know, um, in GDPR there, there's there, there's something about consent and the, the power play um, and the, the, the has the power in the relationship. So. In a, in a medical setting, if you're, particularly if it's a doctor-patient relationship, the doctor has the power. So how valid the consent is for, for, for information sharing um, is contentious because it might not actually be real consent because there might be a power play going on. Um, I mean, obviously it's an area of law that, that's still untested. Yeah. Um, but the helpful thing about GDPR is that you don't have to have consent to share information if it's required to be shared medically. That doesn't mean that you don't have professional responsibilities to talk to your patients. Absolutely. And that doesn't mean that you can't that you don't check with your patient that they don't object and and discuss it with them. Obviously yeah you have to do those things. Um, So it's it's a complex area. I'm not going to pretend to be an expert as I said when I was telling you about my journey. Um, I, I, I brought together the expertise of others to make this happen, um, this piece of, of legislation happen. Lucy, uh, this has been a fascinating conversation. Um, really? I, 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 it's, it's been a real pleasure as ever to catch up with you and uh, have a little uh, deep dive into um, how the joint data controller piece has come to pass and where we're at with it. Um, I'd really like to come back another time and, uh, and have a, a conversation with you just about how you feel it's gone and to talk about um, one or two other bits and pieces that are happening with NSS but um, uh, you've, you've given me a lot of your time today so many thanks indeed <laughs> Thank you very much for listening Neil So there we are many thanks to Lucy for taking the time to catch up with me uh, last week And I hope the content of this podcast has been of interest to you and perhaps given you a few pointers in terms of the things that you need to do to sort out joint data controller responsibilities within your practice. So until next time, Happy New Year. I hope you've all made your resolutions. Goodbye.